Good afternoon, everybody. This is Matt Bieber with the New Mexico Department of Health. Uh, we're here with our regular uh, COVID-19 and vaccine update. Today, our uh, cast of panelists include uh, DOH Acting Secretary David Scrace, DOH State Epidemiologist Christine Ross, and we're also joined by the Cabinet Secretary for the Aging and Long-Term Services Department, Katrina Hotram-Lopez. Uh, so great to be with all three of you. And uh, with that, I'll turn it right over to our panelists. Thanks, Matt, and uh, welcome back to everybody. I uh, uh, hope you all enjoyed your Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, if you had a chance to have a weekend, pandemics make week uh, holiday weekends stressful for some of us, but uh, each of us got some time off, and except for Christine, I think, who is on call. Uh, so I'm uh, Laura's not with us today. I'm going to do uh, an update on vaccines real quickly. And Brianna, if we could uh, first... Our cases, this is yesterday's report. We are still working on today's report. Uh, I think the case count will be higher today though. And uh, you can see uh, still running a very high number of cases. Uh, I think the highest number of hospitalizations uh, we've had this year, this calendar year, and about six with about 6.5% of folks getting hospitalized to have COVID, much, much higher rates and unvaccinated than in vaccinated individuals. Unfortunately, we're now seeing in the neighborhood of nine to 12 deaths a day. And uh, every death is a sad uh, occasion, uh, it, particularly now that we're seeing so many preventable deaths. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But our hearts go out to the families of, uh, who have lost loved ones, not just yesterday, but since the beginning of the pandemic. And as you can see, there's over, uh, by 5,300 deaths now in our state from coronavirus. Next slide, please. On the vaccine front, just a reminder, getting people fully vaccinated is still New Mexico's first priority. I'm gonna show you some rather shocking data about uh, vaccine breakthrough today and the average age of people who die unvaccinated versus vaccinated. And I think you're gonna find that uh, very, very interesting but we wanna get everyone in New Mexico vaccinated that we can possibly get vaccinated. And as you'll hear nonstop, uh, <clears throat> full vaccination soon will be expanded uh, for many of us to include booster vaccines as well. And so that primary series is really important. And then the booster for many, if actually most people who are vaccinated are now due for a booster as well. Next slide, please. On the as you can see, we continue to slowly creep up about a half percent a week. Uh, almost 75% of New Mexicans who are 18 plus are now fully vaccinated. Uh, you can see partially vaccinated about 85.7%. So we're still having every week a half a percent of a percent of people who either get their first vaccine or complete their series. And so that's promising. It's moving very slowly, but we're glad to see people signing up. And we're doing quite well on boosters, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. We have some questions today on boosters, so I'll wait for those questions. But uh, we're doing well on boosters. We're already up to 370,000 individuals who've had a booster shot, which is, uh, depending on the vaccine, we're at about 50% of everybody eligible for Pfizer being vaccinated. That was the one that came out six weeks ago. Moderna and others that are, have come out more recently, J&J for boosters, uh, are also ramping up significantly, but uh, they're about a month behind. Next slide, please. 
the gray area is, uh, you know, that's uh, Department of Health talk for pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. So we did see a downturn in people wanting to go out over the Thanksgiving holiday to get vaccinated. But uh, just before that, we hit a, a, a recent peak, if you will, um, highest point since May or so in terms of the number of vaccinations per week. That's in largest part due to people getting boosters and also people, uh, kids, 5 to 11, uh, coming out with their parents to get the vaccine that they need. And so uh, next slide, please. Uh, this is the progress on booster doses. Again, steady. That uh, blue line is the cumulative number of doses. So that's always going to go up. The green lines are the number of vaccines given per day. You can see, contrary to popular belief, that most people really want to get their vaccination on a weekday, not on a weekend. And you can see uh, that this takes us through, I think, uh, the day before Thanksgiving or so. And and then and then the numbers were a little bit lower. You can see here the day before Thanksgiving, uh, the last bar there. But New Mexico continues to run ahead of the national average in both boosters and uh kids getting vaccinated and we still wish that more people would get boosters. Next slide, please. Uh, we have a lot of booster appointments today. Over the next 30 days, uh, we have 46,000 open booster slots. You can see uh, 63,000 already filled and uh, there are other places you can get vaccines. Those open appointments are just for the people who work with the state registration system and there are others, particularly pharmacies who and IHS, Indian Health Service, that work outside of that registration system. So lots of places to get vaccines, lots of booster appointments available. We got a question about, hey, I heard there were no booster appointments available in the next week. And actually these blue lines are even this week, uh, there's still about 10,000 appointments that have not yet been filled. Uh, that's statewide. I think. Uh, all right, next slide, please. I keep clicking, but then I realize I can't move them. Uh, we do want additional providers to help us give vaccines. Uh, you know, as we move into the booster phase of this, COVID vaccination really should start taking place in doctors and nurse practitioners and physicians assistance offices. Uh, we do want to transfer that, like ideally, over time, COVID boosters will set out, settle out, and um, you know we could do one twelfth of the population every month. But because of the peak we had in April, and then CDC being three months late to let us know when boosters were required, we have another wave we're going to have to go through. Uh, but you know, people in a recent survey said they'd most like to get a vaccination for their kids at their provider office. So we're asking for the remaining couple hundred folks and practices in New Mexico to sign up. And while I'm on this slide too, one of our critical shortages right now is facilities in which to give vaccinations. If you remember uh, January through April, a great deal of New Mexico was closed for business. Now all of New Mexico is open for business. And so those large unused facilities are now being used for their original stated purpose. So particularly in Santa Fe, Española, Albuquerque, Las Cruces. Uh, if you know of a facility uh, that you would uh, like to volunteer, uh, you know, for that we could use 
particularly for a mass vaccination site, for a day or a day a week or every day for that matter, please let us know and uh, our media folks will put a phone number to call in the chat. So you can give us a call or folks can email or call the vaccine helpline to volunteer a facility. Next, uh, I wanna emphasize too, we did a recent survey about why people uh, weren't um, getting vaccinated for unvaccinated people. And like a quarter of people were worried about the cost of the vaccine. The vaccine is completely free. So you will not have to pay anything to be vaccinated. So please uh, reconsider, consider. Uh, I'm gonna make another pitch for this later with some fairly compelling data. Uh, and so consider starting your vaccination series tomorrow. Next slide, please. Brianna, could I have the next slide? Oh, there we go. Uh, update on vaccines for kids. I'm gonna focus on five to 11 year olds. Next slide is uh, our progress. So the red line is the rate of uptake for ages five, uh, of, of sorry, 12 to 15. So we thought we probably will see a slightly less robust uptake in the five to 11 group. But so far we're charting very, very close in terms of the number of parents bringing their kids in. So we're happy with that performance so far. Again, uh, there's 188,866 kids in New Mexico from five to 11. So we're about one sixth of the way there. And we wanna really speak to and encourage parents to strongly consider getting your child vaccinated today. Next slide, please. Uh, the vaccine is safe for kids. We get a lot of questions. Well, what about myocarditis or what about the side effects from the vaccine? And for almost every side effect of the vaccine, including myocarditis, which is extremely rare with the vaccine and much, much more common with COVID, the severity of vaccine-related myocarditis, again, very rare, is much, much lower than the severity of the myocarditis that many, many people get with COVID. So you're, you're, uh, you're actually at greater risk by not being vaccinated than you are by being vaccinated. And you can see as well, uh, in the next uh, month, we've got 20,500 employees for uh, employees, appointments for kids. And uh, most of those are open. We add new appointments every day. So check back and you can go online and just find an appointment right in your city. There's a new box to click on. Uh, and we're revising it to move it to the top. So if you just wanna see the schedule, you don't wanna go into your profile and all that, well, we have a box coming up to click on. You can see every vaccine uh, site available in your city on a particular date or for the next week or whatever. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, I'm gonna turn over to uh, Christine now and she's gonna take us through the epidemiology update today and of course, uh, give us a little quick briefing on the Omicron variant, which we know everyone is uh, very, very interested in. So Christine, take it away. Thank you, Secretary Scrace. So it's my pleasure to be here today to provide a COVID-19 epi update. And so this is a typical slide that I like to start with, uh, which is to just take a snapshot look at the United States. And as I think everybody is aware, uh, the United States continues to see high case rates. Um, 
And especially when you drill down um, uh, down to the state level and even to the county level, there continues to be pockets across the United States of really high level of uh, disease transmission. And if you look at the state level, you can see New Mexico there in the box uh, that we are highlighted as continuing to have um, high case rates uh, currently. Over on the right-hand side is our daily trend in the number of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. And this is um, a, a CDC tracker. So all of our state and local health department and, and um, uh, all the jurisdictions in the United States, so this all gets rolled up into um, uh, data that's, that's shared with the public on the CDC COVID tracker. So this again shows what's happening um, in the seven day case rate um, for the United States. And you can see on the right hand of the slide, our Delta surge uh, in cases, which peaked uh, we began to see a decline in case rates, uh, and then unfortunately, uh, the brakes were hit, and we have uh, we began to level out and then even rise. And so we're going to need to follow this out and see which way this is going to be going um, over the next few weeks. Uh, certainly, we hope to see this um, continue to trend uh, downward from that high plateau that we're we're sitting at. Um, next slide. So this is our statewide epi curve that we share um, every week where we plot out uh, the cases um, by time. Um, so uh, the, if you look along the bottom, you can, you can follow this um, by uh, a month. And you see in the middle there, um, that big mountain, uh, uh, which is our uh, was our winter surge last year of cases. So the black line is the seven day rolling average of cases. And you can see that we had uh, a nadir or a very low point uh, in the summertime. And then again, when the Delta variant became predominant uh, in the United States and then here in New Mexico, uh, we saw this surge in, uh, in case activity again. Um, we hit somewhat of a plateau and then began to accelerate again. And you see this high level uh, where we're sitting there on the far right in that seven day rolling average. Um, not where we want to be, and we certainly hope to see this um, uh, begin to trend downward. And let me look at the next slide. So this is uh, an EPI report that we share weekly um, on our website. And so this is where we look at uh, the case rates by county. And then we also look at the percentage of tests that are positive. So this is kind of drilling down from statewide down to the county level, um, what are we seeing? And there, as you can see, we continue, unfortunately, to, to uh, show a high level of uh, community transmission uh, in all of our counties here in New Mexico. And this is depicted by the red color. Next slide. And then here is something we wanted to share because we do have a little reason for cautious optimism. And so this is the R effective. It's a, it's a metric that we follow. And basically, it's the number of secondary cases for every one index case, or sometimes we describe it as the, the spread rate. And so what we want to see is this number under one. 
And if it's under one, uh, if it continues to, to remain under one, we hope to see um, a, a, a further deceleration in, in our cases and then followed by a decline in our case rates. So this does give us some reason to have some cautious optimism, um, but case rates still remain so elevated that 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 is the primary take home message uh, with what is happening in New Mexico. Uh, and we will have to follow this really closely uh, over the next few weeks, especially post Thanksgiving holiday to see if the travel and the gatherings uh, are going to impact us uh, in a negative way or not. So next slide. And so this slide, we, we wanted to take a jump into what do we see by age band? So we just talked a little bit about geography or where do we see uh, a COVID-19 activity and now just among the various age bands. And as you can see, so this is plotted out. This is the daily case rate uh, broken down by age group with the key over there on the right hand side. And you can see that we had rising incidents or case rates rates in all age bands, some much more dramatic than others. And we attribute this to a few things, um, one being vaccination coverage. So the green line are those 65 and over. And you can see how they also, along with everyone else, uh, had a rise in case rates uh, during this surge in cases. Um, but it's attenuated. It's, it's not as high as we saw last winter. Uh, prior to rollout of, of vaccines. And we know that we have high vaccine uptake in this age band. Where, where we have some areas of vulnerability are the younger age bands. And so you see there at the yellow is really um, uh, showing uh, itself as the highest uh, daily case rate. And that's the five to 17 year olds. And that's followed by the 18 to 34 year olds. Um, zero to four is the black line there, which mirrors or has been fairly similar to the 65 and over. So the five to 17 year old school age band, we know we have a ways to go given the recent approval uh, for vaccination down into that, that lower age group um, or lower level in that age group. So we definitely have a ways to go and hope to see um, continued uptake of vaccination in that age band. And then we will then certainly see a uh, um, uh, decreased burden of disease in, in those school age kids. So next slide. And then this is also a slide you're familiar with. This is where we take, um, uh, we trend out the, the pattern or what have we seen in the test percent positivity or the number of folks that, that seek a test and, and the result is reported to us. What proportion are positive out of all of those tests? And at one point in time, we had, um, we had been below this target of 7.5%. Early on in the pandemic, we'd had a target of around 5%. And this shifted for a number of reasons. But regardless, we were low. We were lower than the 7.5 and even lower than the 5. And you can see with this surge in activity that Mexico has seen starting in July, that that uh, test percent positivity uh, continued to rise. 
where we are now is around 12.7%. We hope to see more testing, um, more individuals seeking testing um, because we we feel we're probably, there is gonna be a segment of, of disease that we're not picking up um, with this high level of test percent positivity. It tells us there's a large disease burden in the community and with more testing, um, we think we'll have an even better idea of what's happening in the community. Uh, so please, uh, if you're if you're uh, exposed to the virus, please seek a test. If you have symptoms consistent with COVID-19, please seek, seek a test. So next slide. And then I think we're going to touch a little bit on the the Omicron variant, and then maybe we'll we'll go into uh, question and answers on this, um, but. It, we know in the United States, we had been tracking one variant of concern for, for some time now, and that was the Delta variant. Um, this is now a new variant of concern, which was designated by the World Health Organization just on Friday, November 26th. And then an interagency um, group of experts in the United States also deemed it a variant of concern uh, for us here in the US. Uh, it was just a few days later. So there has only been a few days uh, lapse in time uh, since this occurred. So unfortunately, there's going to be a lot that we do not know at, at this juncture, and we will certainly share information as we learn it. To date, this new variant has not been identified in New Mexico. When we had put this slide together, we, we didn't have a documented case in the United States. But in fact, I think just a few hours ago, it has been sequenced um, uh, from a lab uh, in California. So uh, my understanding is the, the San Francisco Health Department has, has confirmed our first case, um, which was caught, which has been, um, sequenced and confirmed as the Omicron uh, variant. The new variant, um, really it was South Africa that really alerted the globe um, of this, uh, this new variant. And then it was quickly identified uh, in, in eight different South countries in South Africa. And then this list just keeps growing. And you'll see a few countries that are listed there has, that have already identified it. But I think this is, this is out of date at this juncture, because now that we know to look for it, um, there are uh, many countries that are able to identify it. Um, what do we know? So, so again, South Africa really uh, raised the flag and graciously shared what they know they knew about this new variant very quickly with the globe. And so I'm looking at the table on the right. Um, I think it's important to say, what do we think that this is detected by routine testing? Yes. Um, uh, we know that our PCR tests uh, um, and other modalities are able to identify um, uh, Delta and also uh, Omicron. What is its its transmissibility? Is it possibly going to have an increased level of transmissibility? Possibly, we don't know. And then you see on the table, there's a lot, there are, uh, there are many question marks. And these are things that we need to, um, we're probably going to need several weeks of time to elapse um, because this was newly identified. Um, there are scientists really around the globe that are trying to answer specific questions 
questions about uh, this new variant. So again, it has not been identified here in New Mexico. We do conduct uh, genomic surveillance uh, led out of uh, our state uh, laboratory uh, with several key partnerships, including UNN, UNM, um, LANL, and, and there are some commercial labs. So we have a, a fairly robust network. Um, currently, we continue to work to strengthen that network, but today, we have not identified, um, uh, we have not sequenced Omicron to this date. Let me go ahead and go to the next slide. So why are why is the world so concerned? Um, and I don't think we'll go into a lot of details and I always wanna make a disclaimer that I'm certainly not a virologist, um, but what I can tell you is that there's a large number of mutations in, in, in this um, variant, which sit in an area uh, called the spike protein, which has, has raised alarms. There's uh, uh, basically because where those mutations are sitting and also because of the sheer number of mutations. So this is a really nice uh, picture of phylogenetic trees of, of different um, variants. And the green is all Delta. And, and then I think the take home message is, is that this Omicron um, did not, is not derived from Delta. In fact, it was its own group of, of viruses that have been, uh, or lineages that have been circulating at a low level. You can see that in the gray and Omicron has, uh, has developed from, from what you see there in the gray. So it does, it did not, um, it did not evolve or develop uh, from a prior variant of concern or even a variant of interest. So this this is there's a lot yet to to learn about this. Um, I think we can go to the the next slide. And so again, this is from our, this is a slide that we also usually show. This, this slide on the left, this is a graphic that's included in our variant of concern report, which we share publicly. And you can see what, what's depicted in the yellow color or the gold is the predominance of the Delta variant and how it remains to be the predominant variant that we sequence. And, and when you use um, some, uh, when CDC um, uh, does some modeling with, with the sequence data, it really comes out to over 99.9%. Uh, I think what we're seeing at a national level and then also what we're seeing uh, here in New Mexico. And so again, we think what we're grappling with with this surge is, is Delta. And we know that Delta is at least two times as transmissible or contagious. And so it has caused, um, it, we think it is a major contributor to what's happening here in New Mexico with this current surge. Um, next slide. I think that's it for me, and I'm going to be happy to answer questions. I think there may be a lot of questions about Omicron that I didn't quite uh, get to, and so happy to uh, answer questions uh, at a later time. So over to you, uh, Secretary Hotram Lopez. Okay, so I'm just going to butt in here for a minute, Director Ross, Dr. Ross, uh, but uh, and introduce Kat Katrina. She's been on previous press conferences. You can keep your camera on, Katrina. Uh, 
Katrina Hotram Lopez is our aging and uh, long-term services department secretary. And we, we work very closely together on almost everything. Also turns out with me being a geriatrician and her being in charge of aging, we have lots of other non-COVID related uh, pursuits. And we we're on a phone call yesterday, in fact, about what we're gonna do with the aging population. But a couple weeks ago at our last press conference, Chris McKee asked for a little bit of an update about what was going on in nursing homes. And so uh, we've asked Katrina to stop by, join us today, uh, hit us with the highlights for nursing home cases and vaccinations and maybe deaths. And then and then we're going to, uh, she'll be a, stay around to answer additional questions from Chris or any other reporter at the end. Katrina. Oh, thank you, David. And it's, you know, pleasure to be back on. Um, thank you for having uh, me today. Um, it's, it's great to talk about what's happening in long-term care facilities, because I think the last time I was on, um, you know, things uh, weren't as, as stable um, as they are today. So uh, if we can go to the first slide, please, or the next slide, please, Brianna. And so, you know, things are looking better. So as you can see, we did, we did start having an increase in both resident and staff um, uh, rates of, of cases per 100,000. As you can see, though, this week, um, you know, we, we have been trending down. We hope that it continues in that way. Uh, we have been uh, working diligently on rolling out booster vaccinations. And so um, that process has already started and, and we hope to continue to see a, a decline. So we're very pleased about um, and optimistic about this decline and, and hope it continues. Next slide. So this slide is really um, talking about uh, our, our COVID-19 cases just by, by county. And as you can see, you know, and we've said this before, that the nursing home cases are um, really tied to what's happening in that county in the community. And so um, what we see here, uh, just in new long-term care facility COVID cases, uh, Sandoval County, uh, facilities have the greatest number of cases with 37. Bernalillo County has the second highest with 33, followed by Harding County with 24. And Los Alamos County, congratulations, zero new cases for the week. So we're very excited about these trends and we'll continue to report on them. So again, uh, for those of you who are listening, we encourage you to get your boosters, Thank you for being vaccinated and wearing your masks because it um, has a direct correlation on what's happening in these long-term care facilities with our residents and staff who are working so hard to make sure that people are safe. Next slide, please. So um, again, more good news. Our death rates in long-term care, care facilities continue to decline. So um, if you look since the vaccine rollout began and that, that big yellow line shows us where the rollout started, you can see a steep decline in the death rates. And so um, where we used to have nearly 10 deaths a day before the vaccination rollout, we are down to less than one death per day. And that continues, even though we've seen a rise in cases, we are still seeing low death rates. So we're encouraged by that and just um, uh, thankful to the community and to um, the staff and residents for continuing to um, you know, wear masks, social distance, and of course, get vaccinated and boosted. Next slide, please. And again, you know, I, I know that this is 
um, you know, just great information for us. It's really uh, a testament to the, the hard work of both um, staff and facilities in long-term care settings. Staff vaccination rate is, you know, uh, just less than 92 percent. Um, there's an exemption rate, as we know about, that's allowed in the public health order. Um, we also have a, a, just a tiny percent of um, non-direct care staff uh, who, you know, who, who don't deal with residents and don't interact with residents who do not, um, under the public health order, have to be vaccinated. And each of the long-term care facilities and their employers decide who they are, but we're still tracking that as well. And then um, our resident vaccination rate is 91%. So we're very excited about these numbers and look forward to our progress on boosters. Next slide. Thank you. And just thanks again to our residents and our staff um, and our facilities for all your hard work and making sure that our residents are safe. Thank you. Back to you, David. Yeah, thank you, Katrina. And just thank you for all you've done. I mean, there's, it's been very challenging dealing with these outbreaks in nursing homes. Uh, if every, anybody can remember back, whatever it is now, 19, 20 months ago, our initial outbreaks were in nursing homes and we've just come a really, really long way. The vaccine certainly has been a godsend, but the reason those numbers are 90% plus is because of all the hard work you've done to ensure that our facilities comply with public health orders. Uh, you set up uh, actually weekly reporting long before we did for other types of workers. And so your data has been just great. So thank you so much for that. I'm going to go on and talk a little bit more about vaccine breakthrough cases. And uh, on the next slide, you'll be able to see the usual report, which you can find online under epidemiology reports. This is the vaccination report. It has been expanded. So there's new materials in there for those of you who are interested in looking at it. But you can see that uh, the orange are unvaccinated individuals, 71% of cases right now are occurring in unvaccinated individuals. And remember, unvaccinated inv individuals are now less than 30% of adults. So a much, much higher rate. Hospitalizations, much, much higher, five to one ratio. And deaths now, interestingly, a little bit of a different ratio, five to one. These numbers do vary from week to week. And, and so we some, see some variation there. We did a little bit of a study working with Lanol uh, using a subset of the New Mexico population. And, and we looked at what's the vaccine breakthrough rate for people who had a, their primary series before June 1st, and what's the vaccine breakthrough rate uh, for those who had it on or after uh, June 1st. And what we found was if your booster is more than six months old, which, you know, June 1st is exactly six months ago, uh, if it's more than six months old, you're, you have four times the likelihood of a vaccine breakthrough case as if it's less than six months. And that's why you're hearing us talk about boosters so much. It's why New Mexico was one of the first states to uh, actually recommend that all uh, those 18 and older who'd had, had, had their primary series more than six months ago for Pfizer, Pfizer and Moderna, get a booster shot as soon as possible. Your uh, panel today is, we've all had our boosters. And then I think uh, 
And then if you if you got a J and J, it's only two months. So if you got your J and J vaccine, uh, basically in September, any day in September or earlier, you too are due for a second shot of that vaccine. And one last reminder: you can mix and match, so you can actually get any booster uh, to complement any of the original vaccines. Next slide, please. Uh, this is the what I think is a little bit shocking data. I want to give credit to the governor's chief of staff, Matt Garcia, who asked me this question a couple of weeks ago, and to Christine, uh, Dr. Ross, Christine Ross and her team who ran the analysis. But Matt said, how old are people who are unvaccinated, you know, when they're in the hospital? And how old are they when they're vaccinated when they're in the hospital? We ran that analysis. We also looked at deaths. And uh, Matt was really on to something, and I think this is headline-level data. We used median age, and I can explain that in a statistics seminar for you all later, when we use median and when we use mean. The, the numbers in the mean are almost identical uh, to the ones in the median. But So it's that. It's essentially very close to the average age of people. So if you're uh, vaccinated... Uh, and I'm going to kind of focus more on the right-hand column uh, that begins with 70.2 than the left, but this was true beforehand as well. Uh, let's get, look at the right-hand column. If you're hospitalized and vaccinated, your average age is 70 years old. However, if you're unvaccinated and hospitalized, your average age is 55, a 15-year difference. And I know having been through that period of my life, that there's a sense of invulnerability that we have that starts in adolescence and lasts till whenever we get over adolescence, which may be in people's 50s and 60s in some cases. But in any case, uh, you can see here that the average age of people who end up in the hospital with COVID is 55, 15 years younger. And even more sobering, I think, is that the difference in deaths is uh, actually it's 14. I, I for some reason that I calculated as 15 before, but the average person who dies of COVID, who's been vaccinated, and this is much much less common to die of COVID. You know, it's a uh, much much less common. Uh, you know, a five to one to ten or ten to one ratio between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated. Average age, 79 years. Average age, if you're unvaccinated and die from COVID, is 65 years. So we get lots of questions about why should I be vaccinated and and is it really necessary and I'm younger, do I really need it? Well, I really believe that, I mean, and there are other variables here too, right? Death rate is higher uh, in older people than it is younger people, which would actually compress this number. It would be even bigger if we corrected for that. But I like to look at this data and, and think about the fact that you can add 14 years to your life by being vaccinated if you're uh, in the unlucky event you get COVID. Now, unfortunately, once you get COVID and you're hospitalized um, and, and you're one of those 2% of people who die, then uh, you don't have the opportunity to get vaccinated then. But getting vaccinated now can potentially buy every unvaccinated New Mexican 14 additional years of life. And 
that's pretty compelling to me. Uh, and uh, I'm hoping it will be compelling to others. Again, there are other factors, but almost all the other factors that figure into this actually uh, <clears throat> create a situation where that 14-year difference is sort of the minimum estimate. Uh, so I thought that was really worth pausing on and you just change that 15 up there to a 14. That was a math error on my part. Now, Brianna's uh, will be all set. Next slide, please. Uh, hospitalizations and death, still struggling in our hospitals. Next slide, please. Uh, you can see that uh, we continue in crisis standards of care. The hospital situation is not getting a lot better. I don't have all this, the maps uh, for you today, but very, very small number of uh, ICU beds still available. Next slide. And we continue to struggle to move people around the state. On the brighter side, Presbyterian's hospitalization projections for the next couple of weeks show uh, a little bit more of an uptick and then a downward trend. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, you can see where the today arrow is, but I think we're going to see a leveling off of general beds and a, uh, uh, a uh, decline potentially in ICU use. Uh, and I'm hoping that this, uh, we've had really, uh, if you look backwards on most of the things we've projected, they have been projected with a really high degree of accuracy based on the modeling team at Presbyterian and the modeling team on Atlanta. All of the modeling done in New Mexico is based on New Mexico data. So we have some really sophisticated ways of looking at what um, current performance or current case numbers or current hospitalizations or current ICU use predict about future use. Next slide, please. Um, you know, we got some questions before the press conference. We continue to get them. Well, what's the state doing to help out hospitals? Well, we're doing a lot uh, through the MAT team. We meet with them on a regular basis. We're helping them problem solve on the staffing end. We have reached out on their behalf and brought in 284 additional healthcare personnel into the state. You can see where these folks are distributed throughout the state. The vast majority of these individuals are nurses and we're looking to provide additional nursing uh, staff to the state as well. Uh, the These staff that are provided and shown here are actually provided through FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management uh, Bureau. And, and well, um, the, that is reimbursed to the state at 100%. Takes a while to get the money back from them after we spend it, but it's reimbursed at 100%. And so it's it's actually federal taxpayer dollars, us, us and many others that help support this funding. Uh, we do have a, a that 20 person team from the US Navy coming to Farmington to bump that up to 70. They're still really in trouble in Farmington, working really hard with the additional 70 people to keep their heads above water, but they're doing better as a result of these additional resources. And I should have said additional 96 people. Next slide, please. Deaths plateauing. Uh, I don't like where they're plateauing. Uh, having, you know, one and a half to two deaths a day on average uh, is too high, but at least we're not at the 90 a week we're down more in the 50s 
or low 60s a week for the most part on average. And so um, hopefully as cases go down, then hospitalizations will go back down and then deaths will go back down and we won't see a decline likely in the death rate for about four to six weeks uh, after we see the decline in case rates, which we have not yet seen, but are hoping to see soon. Next slide, please. On treatments, next slide. Uh, you can see we had a little bit of a downtick. We had a lower Regeneron supply, which is the purple one there. It's a little easier to use. Most people want it, but uh, I know I got several calls from people I know wanting to know how, how to get monoclonal antibody treatment over uh, the weekend, Thanksgiving weekend. We got those folks set up. You can call your own provider if you test positive for COVID and they can help you get set up with one of the many, many sites. And we now have mobile sites uh, delivering Regeneron. And we even had a patient who received a dose of Regeneron uh, in a nursing home. Um, I think it was yesterday. It was actually earlier this week. I've lost track of which day it was, but I think it was yesterday. Next slide. And so uh, I don't think this necessarily represents a downward trend. A reminder to everyone listening, if you're COVID positive, you have symptoms, and you meet any one of the following criteria, being 65 or older, being obese, which technically is your BMI greater than 30, and you can go online if you know your height and weight and calculate your BMI. And then uh, third is if you have any condition that predisposes you to more serious COVID. And that, that includes things like high blood pressure that many, many people have. So please don't forget, please consider taking monoclonal antibody treatment. Next slide, please. Uh, uh, we had uh, Presbyterian continues to deliver more and more doses each week. This is their whole system delivery. Eastern New Medical, uh, New Mexico Medical Center now up in the in the mid hundreds, uh, 155. Every one of these groups is higher than they've been before, and we're and each time, you know, for every one of these doses given, uh, the potential is that three quarters of those will be prevented hospitalizations. So we're on the right track. We think we're preventing hundreds of hospitalizations uh, a week by giving this, which is uh, which are hospitalizations that our current delivery system could not possibly handle. Next slide, please. Uh, it, again, more excitement. We will have oral drugs out soon. There's been some controversy in the uh, uh, literature about whether or not these oral drugs are, are as effective in preventing infections, but there's no controversy that um, they reduce hospitalization by 90%. So if you get if you get COVID and you and you take one of these oral drugs, you actually do better than taking an IV or subcutaneous infusion of one of the monoclonal antibodies. So this is a wonderful new, new tool in our toolkit. Obviously, having to drive to a, a health center and get an IV started and be there while they run in the infusion and then be observed for an hour, uh, and then driving back home, very costly, very time consuming. And if you're sick with COVID, Frankly, you don't really want to be out of your house, right? So these pills will allow us to 
<clears throat> give oral treatment so you can have one of your kids or your spouse go to the pharmacy or, or go to the place where it will be dispensed because initially it'll be distributed through the state, get these doses. It's uh, one pill twice a day for five days or 10 pills. And so I am hoping that as the supply of this drug increases because it, it will not be sufficient, it's not enough to equal the number of monoclonal antibody treatments we're giving, but I'm hoping that as the supply increases, we will actually see uh, oral agents uh, take over most of the work that monoclonal antibodies are doing for us now. So <clears throat> we'll keep you posted, predicted that we'll have some doses, not very many by the end of the week, and then we'll start providing you with regular updates, just like we do on the monoclonal antibodies, <clears throat> showing you, we'll just add a bar on top of how many oral courses of treatment were given in the previous week. Next slide. Uh, one last thing, got a question. I did mention offhand a couple of weeks ago, we had a third death from ivermectin. Uh, the, the case investigations that need to occur for the first two people who actually just delayed their care with COVID and uh, they, uh, they ended up being too sick by the time they got to the hospital to survive. Those were the first two. The third one was a man in his 60s who just basically took an overdose of ivermectin. He took a horse dose of ivermectin 50 times the dose that I would prescribe to somebody with a parasite infection in my practice. Doesn't happen very often, but I have prescribed it in the past year or so. And uh, uh, and so that patient died of just an ivermectin overdose. And so uh, again, we have proven therapies, and now we're going to have even more proven therapies. Please, please don't, uh, uh, <clears throat> please don't take something that doesn't work when you can take something that did. It's like I said a long time ago. It's like taking antacids for a heart attack. It doesn't work. Next slide, please. If you, by the way, if you have a heart attack, take an aspirin and then immediately call nine one one. All right, that was the primary care doctor in the emerging. So the pandemic is not over. Please get vaccinated. Everybody, please get your booster. If you think you're COVID positive or you think you're, you have symptoms, get tested. If you've been exposed to someone who's COVID positive, get tested. Uh, again, if you have a positive COVID test symptoms and a risk factor, please seek out treatment. It will dramatically lower your chances of being in the hospital. And it will really, really help the folks who've been working very hard in our hospitals for a really long time now. And just again, reminder to be careful indoors, which is why we have still asking people to wear masks in public indoor places. And then all the things we already know how to do with washing our hands, coughing into our elbow, uh, <clears throat> wearing those masks, keeping our distance, getting vaccinated. And then don't forget preventive health care. Right now, the hospitals are not over full of COVID patients. They're over full of people in general who have delayed care and now are much, much sicker. Now, we do have a lot of COVID hospitalizations right now, but just, a big, just as big an issue are folks who delayed care. So please remember to get that care at, and, uh, and catch up with your family, doctor, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, or whoever 
you see soon if you haven't done so recently. And I think with that, Matt, we're done and we can uh, roll this back over to you and to our reporters and we can get started on our Q&A. Great, thanks so much. All right, just as a friendly reminder for, for everyone, including uh, folks who may not have joined us before, um, we use the raise your hand method. So please uh, raise your hand using Zoom's functionality and uh, we'll call on you. And I'll, I'll call on three people at a time and we'll go in that order. And when it's your turn, please announce uh, the media outlet that you're associated with. Uh, also, uh, no need to stack a bunch of questions together. We'll just go through the, the whole list of folks as many times as we need to until everyone's gotten all their questions answered. So if you can focus on one question at a time, that's really helpful for our panelists. And with that, um, let's begin. I see a couple of hands. So we'll, we'll begin with Julia Goldberg, followed by Cedar Atanasio, followed by Brianna Albizu. Uh, Julia, you are unmuted. Uh, thanks, Matt. Uh, thank you for taking my question. I wondered if, um, I guess, based on the state's experience um, with the Delta variant, if there were any, if there were any adjustments that were being made, um, if what the state's role is, is it just a wait and see, or are there any adjustments being made to um, the amount of sequencing that's happening or the contact tracing that's occurring? Thank you. Uh, I'll just start off. Uh, Julia, it's a great question. I think the first adjustment that we made a long time ago is, uh, you know, to, you know, shut everything down. And, uh, you know, New Mexico is not an island. We're not New Zealand. We can't close our borders. We can't keep Omicron from coming to our state. Everyone fully anticipates we'll see it soon. We can't uh, stop that. On the sequencing end, we're working hard. You know, uh, we have great partnerships with Lanol, Sandia, UNM. Uh, we're not like New York with, you know, whatever, 100 large scientific academic institutions that we can just farm all of this out to. Uh, but um, we've done really well. Uh, the first, uh, we've identified the first Delta cases in New Mexico really, really early. Uh, in that uh, part of the pandemic, alpha, same thing. So uh, we're, and, and the thing is that right now, what we do about it is the same. What we would do about a new Omicron case isn't really that much different than what we would do with a Delta case and what we are doing. I don't know if you have any other uh, comments, Christine, on sequencing or contact tracing. Oh, sure. I just wanted to start from the national level. So again, this is really evolving very quickly, um, but we've already had multiple calls. Um, all of the, the, the states gather together um, to communicate with CDC and information is shared. And so a couple, a couple notable things have happened uh, quite recently. So there was a presidential proclamation um, where there were restrictions placed on travel into the United States from eight different uh, countries in South Africa. 
in Southern Africa, uh, which includes South Africa. Um, and so this suspends travel of non-citizens. And I just want to say the goal is, is to slow the spread uh, so that we can learn more about this um, of, um, uh, in, the, in the interim. So one thing is, is this presidential proclamation. Uh, the other thing is to note that the travel guidance is getting stricter or, or more robust. And so we're looking, if you wanna travel into the United States, if you're a non-US citizen, um, you need to be fully vaccinated. Um, there's gonna be new guidance that's gonna come out very shortly, I think in the next week, where, where they're gonna continue to tighten up um, uh, guidance. And what I mean by that is uh, we're gonna be asking for a pre-test, uh, pre-travel test, uh, and we wanna see a negative within one day. And this doesn't matter if your vaccine, it doesn't matter what your vaccine status is or which country your travel is originating from. So we're gonna wanna see that negative. And it, it, there was a period of time where, where, where that, uh, the, uh, the guidance was different. So let me just uh, um, summarize. So again, we're gonna wanna see a negative. And then when you land into the United States, um, we're gonna ask folks, uh, to quarantine. And we're also going to ask for a post-arrival test. So three to five days after, after you've arrived. So we are working together at the state level uh, with CDC. So CDC is strengthening uh, their relationship, uh, I understand, um, with um, the travel industry and airlines in order to um, gather information on travelers and on their final destination. So we're gonna be working together. If there's international travelers specifically coming from those eight countries, um, we are going to try to do enhanced follow-up and, and ensure that those travelers uh, know the recommendation for quarantine and, and for testing. And then again, we're going to be working together. Uh, you know, again, our, we, we conduct genomic surveillance. Uh, and again, this is a whole network that feeds into this national uh, surveillance effort. And um, we're going to certainly target that, that um, sequencing if indeed we have any um, uh, travelers that come into the state that end up positive and in any other fashion that, that may uh, facilitate gathering more information about any positives um, who sequence out as Omicron. So we're gonna be working together with CDC to try to gather as much information as we can on cases um, so that we think that, that there is still so much to know. Uh, so uh, definitely we're going, to, uh, we're going to try to ramp that up. And um, there's another little key I'll mention is that there's a particular PCR test that um, kind of acts as a little early warning sign. Um, and actually our state lab uses this type of PCR test where uh, you have a, a what's called an S gene target failure. And if we see that, um, we're gonna pull that out and we're gonna sequence it. And, and I think what's gonna help us here is that we have this background of Delta, nearly everything is Delta and Delta doesn't sequence, uh, doesn't have that S gene uh, target failure. So when we start, if we start seeing that, we're gonna be able to pull those out and, and sequence those. But let me pause, maybe that was more than you had asked. <laughs> Uh, I hope that answered your no, question. No, it's never more than a best. Thank you very much. 
Great, thanks so much. Uh, okay, next we'll turn to Cedar Atanasio, followed by Brianna Albizu, followed by Lou Divizio. Cedar, you are unmuted. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Thanks as always for, for doing this and for taking questions. Um, I'm wondering, Dr. Scrace, if you could elaborate a little bit more on the pediatricians. I had spoken anecdotally with, with uh, one or two that said it was just the logistics of offering vaccine um, and the scale that was intimidating them. Do you know on a broader sense why pediatricians haven't been offering vaccine and is there anything the state can do to incentivize it for them? Sure, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, the vast majority of pediatricians do offer the vaccine. One of the things that keeps pediatricians alive is making sure that every one of their kids, uh, patient, their, their patients, has full vaccination series of everything. You know, there's like 16 vaccines they have to administer. And so I think I, I, I'd be happy to personally talk to the pediatrician you talk to, but I'm willing to bet that that person looked into this in January or December last year and said, this is way too complicated. Since then, we've simplified it pretty dramatically. Uh, I don't have a breakdown by pediatricians, but I know that about 70% of providers currently uh, or more are registered in this system. I wish I had my graph with me today. And uh, so I would just tell your pediatrician that you talk to, to contact the DOH again and learn about ways we're here to help all pediatricians make it easier for them to get set up. There's a whole bunch of different factors here. I don't want to go into all of them. But another thing to remember too is when Pfizer first came out, it came in this box of just a really big box full of doses. And now that's been broken down by a factor of 10. It's more manageable. The temperature requirements uh, for storage have been significantly relaxed. Uh, I think you may remember me reading that we had to keep these things at minus 60 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 70. So I went to my refrigerator and freezer and clicked, kept clicking on the how cold can I get it button and it only went to minus four. So, uh, but I think the vaccine is clearly accessible to all primary care practices now and the majority of folks are doing it. So please tell that pediatrician to take a second one. Okay, thanks. Uh, next we'll turn to Brianna Albizu, followed by Lou Divizio, followed by Ryan Botel. Brianna, you are unmuted. Brianna, we're not hearing you. Um, it looks like you're muted on your end. There you go. Hey, can you hear me? Yep, we can. Perfect. Yay. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you again for providing this update. Uh, my question is related to the new COVID-19 variant Omicron. Uh, part of my question was just answered, but uh, this is sort of a two-part question anyways. Um, as Dr. Ross said earlier, a case was confirmed in California earlier today. Uh, the individual, I believe, was also fully vaccinated. So does that complicate any efforts that state officials are looking into in terms of, you know, possibly curbing this potential spread? 
Yeah, I'm going to let Chris, Christine turn her camera on and jump in. But I will say this, that uh, I, I I would have a whole bunch more questions before I'd want to answer. I want to know when that person got their first shot and their second shot, what vaccine they got. But, uh, you know, we in science, we talk about that being a study with an N of one. And you can never prove anything from just one case. I suppose if someone lived forever, uh, you could prove that the human mortality rate was not 100% anymore. But um, so no, and I think I think Christine outlined it really well. We're not going to be able to say anything intelligent uh, about what to expect from Omicron until we can fill in all those boxes that have question marks in Christine's slide, uh, Dr. Russ's slide. So uh, I would, I'm going to let her jump in as well. But I think we decided before the press conference that given that we couldn't say anything intelligent, it would be better not to say anything until we had sufficient data. Christine? Yeah, I, I think I think I can I can confirm uh, your information. That's the same information that I have, that um, this was a traveler that returned from uh, South Africa um, uh, reported being fully vaccinated, um, uh, which means uh, two shots. I don't know the timing of, of that that second shot, uh, but no history of a booster and had uh, recently just returned and, and developed some mild symptoms and, and then tested positive. And then, I, you know, I do want to say that uh, I just confirm what, what Secretary Scrace just said. There's so many unknowns now that I, I don't think it would be useful to to um, speculate at this time. Um, but we are, uh, through the measures that I just described, uh, we want to slow the spread. Um, um, and we are pulling together as a nation um, to share all of our, our, our sequencing data and um, work together with tracking of international traver, travelers so that we can learn, um, so we can gather information as quickly as we can together with scientists around the globe. Because remember, this has now been identified in a number of countries. Um, so hopefully we'll have answers um, over the next few weeks. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Okay, next we'll turn to Lou DeVizio, followed by Ryan Botel, followed by Austin Fisher. Lou, you are unmuted. Thank you. Hi, this is Lou DeVizio with New Mexico PBS. Um, I, you kind of talked about this with your uncertainty, but to your knowledge now, do you have any information about which vaccines have the best efficacy against Omicron? Um, whether it be Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson. And uh, second part, how soon do you see the fully vaccination status to include the booster? When do you think that could happen? So we don't have information on your first question. I'll just I'll just jump in there. And and I'm I'm not familiar with which uh, vaccine type uh, is available in uh, South Africa. But I do think it would be important to understand the vaccination coverage uh, is is much lower uh, in that country um, as compared to ours, and then much much lower uh, in in those uh, surrounding countries that are also in southern. Uh, Africa. So I want to say we are we are um, 
uh, it's very difficult to to uh, predict uh, what we're going to see. And especially we we don't have vaccine uh, specific information, nor do we have uh, uh, specific information yet on the impact on monoclonals um, or antivirals. So this this uh, will you'll have to stay tuned. Unfortunately, I wish I had more answers today, but it's it's just emerged and it's it's evolving really rapidly. Thank you. Uh, as for the fully vaccination status, at what point do you think that could change? Is that months, weeks? Uh, you mean in terms of the, you mean in terms of the state's guidance? Correct, correct. I would say days. Okay. Thank state's you. End. Well do. Thanks everybody. Next we'll turn to Ryan Botel, followed by Austin Fisher, followed by Adrian Hidden. Ryan, you're unmuted. Hi, thanks everyone for taking my questions. This is uh, Ryan Botel with the Albuquerque Journal. Um, Dr. Scrace, I was curious what your thoughts were on venues that require uh, guests show proof of vaccination or a negative test in order to enter. Uh, currently, the University of New Mexico's basketball arena doesn't have such a policy, though some officials are advocating for one. Do you think that's a, a good idea for large indoor venues? And do you think that those policies are effective um, in keeping the venues safer? Thank you. I'm pretty sure you're asking the Dr. Grace, who's the acting secretary of health, that question. But let me just tell you, uh, the David's Grace, who doesn't work for anybody, my own personal opinion is I would feel much more comfortable myself going to venues where that um, those kind of <clears throat> safeguards are in place. In fact, my wife and I went to uh, dinner about a month and a half ago honoring Billy Jimenez, the Department of Health's attorney, and to, uh, he was got this really special award for being an outstanding attorney, which indeed he is, and everybody who works with him will tell you that. But to get in, we had to show proof of uh, vaccination or a test within the past couple of days. And so that is a way of making indoor environments safer. I think it will be even more safe as more of us get a booster vaccine. But, uh, uh, and so, but then there's the public policy question. Should the state mandate that folks uh, <clears throat> all indoor venues or all restaurants or all concerts or uh, be set up that way. And I don't know the answer to that, to be really honest with you. I think like, for example, with con concerts, almost every concert venue we have is in a native American setting where we don't get to regulate uh, uh, those concert venues, uh, <clears throat> restaurants. You know, I'm more, you know, I think you've heard me say on these press conferences, I'm much more interested in something that we can all live with for the next two to three years. And so I think one of the things I've been thinking about and talking with some of the folks in state government who help with work with our businesses is, is there a way to incentivize businesses to want to use that model? I was in San Francisco in August <clears throat> visiting my daughter, went to a restaurant, couldn't get in. 
because I didn't have my vaccination card or my ID. They were driving and paying, so I didn't have either. So I went back to her house, got my vaccination card, uh, got in with and my ID, got in just in time for the appetizers to be served. So that worked out well, but, um, you know, I felt safe there. <clears throat> I appreciated the fact that business owners were making an effort to keep their environment as safe as they possibly could. But the other thing I liked about that, same as the one in New York City, is these things are being decided at the local level or the city level. And I think at the end of the day, to live with COVID for another two or three years, I think we're going to need more cities and localities to step up and decide what they want to do in their own areas uh, to increase safety. Because we're not getting lots of calls in Santa Fe here uh, begging us to tell more people what they can and cannot do. So I, I, I think I dodged your question. I told you what I thought personally. I don't know what the right public policy decision is. I do know in New York, in San Francisco, uh, <clears throat> restaurants cl claim an increase in uh, patrons as a result of the, the what they call the passport system or the green system, uh, or uh, what is what they call it in other systems, in other countries, I'm sorry. So anyway, uh, that's kind of everything I think about it. And there is, I haven't seen any good scientific data yet that shows the overall benefit of uh, case rates in a community where that sort of passport system, if you will, I don't like the name passport, but where that system is in place. So I think we would also need a little bit more science uh, to back us up. Uh, but something I'm looking at, something I'm thinking about, and something I'm thinking about more from an incentivized uh, perspective than a mandate perspective. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Scrace. Uh, next, we'll turn to Austin Fisher, followed by Adrian Hedden, followed by Chris McKee. Oops. Um, I just, the, Austin, you took your hand down, but I'm going to assume you still want to ask your question. Uh, yes. Hello. Uh, thanks so much for the time. Uh, my uh, question is for Dr. Straight, uh, Dr. Scrace, um, and it's about sort of the global context here of unequal access to the COVID vaccines and treatments and how New Mexico could work with the federal government in order to actually end the pandemic. So in, in October 2020, India and South Africa put forward a proposal to suspend key intellectual property rules at the World Trade Organization so that Global South countries could access cheaper generic versions of COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. Uh, the measure is called a TRIPS waiver, a reference to the WTO's TRIPS agreement, which sets international rules around patents. So my question is, has the Department of Health had any discussions about asking the Biden administration, specifically the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, about supporting the South Africa-India proposal? Why or why not? Um, good question. Thanks for asking in advance. It gave me like 30 seconds to Google TRIPS waiver. Uh, let me start at the top. Uh, at the top of our mission statement, actually, uh, the Department of Health is really dedicated to equity in care uh, for New Mexicans. But those principles of equity and the importance of equity and the importance of correcting racial 
and socioeconomic uh, and other forms of disparities that clearly exist and have been shown to exist for many years in healthcare systems and even in public health systems in some cases, we think those need to be corrected. So no question about that. Uh, since this kind of came to media attention two days ago, no, we have not had a discussion with the Biden administration about this yet. I'm certainly happy to uh, bring it to the uh, <clears throat> the governor's attention. Question for you, though. One of the things I couldn't find anywhere in this is examples of generic versions of these things that are currently available. I think I think the pipeline to develop generic versions of these may take quite a period of time. So I'm just going to ask you a question. Are you familiar with specific treatments or drugs or vaccines that you're thinking of when you say this, or is it just a global? No manufacturer should be able to retain any patent rights for anything that's used to prevent or treat COVID as long as the pandemic continues. Uh, so the, the, the South Africa India proposal would allow manufacturers globally to produce these, I don't know, specific treatments or vaccines, but it would it would allow these patent rules to be suspended, for example, with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines. But it would also, the proposal calls for uh, global North countries to provide technical support, medical expertise, and ensuring that there is an industrial level of manufacturing for these vaccines in the countries where uh, there are very few people who have even received uh, a single dose. Yeah, well, uh, okay, that's helpful. Thank you. I think there's no question that the pandemic's going to keep going until the world's vaccinated. So we all get that. We all know that. Um, true, we're working in our little corner of the United States uh, on the southern border, you know, in New Mexico. Here, I think the governor is very, very dedicated to equity as well and an ardent uh, advocate for that. There is another side to this, and I'm not bringing the other side up to advocate for it, but just to point it out, is that if a, a drug company like Pfizer or Moderna, who spends hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to develop a vaccine, figuring that over the course of 10 years, <clears throat> that investment will pay off, if that ability, uh, if if they lose that exclusive patent, uh, I guess I, my main concern would be what their response would be during the next pandemic or their willingness to make an investment uh, to produce really anything. Uh, and so I'm not like a big, I'm not a little advocate for drug companies in general, but they're, the way the economics of this works for any company to develop any new product is they develop a spreadsheet with seven years of expected returns. And so uh, I would worry about future motivations, but I think that's something that needs to be debated uh, within the Biden administration. And uh, you know we work very well with them, have very open lines of communication I know a couple of people I could mention this to in the next couple of days that will uh, talk more. So thanks for bringing it up. It was interesting for me because it was something uh, that I appreciated having on my radar. Thank you. 
All right, next we'll turn to Adrian Hedden, followed by Chris McKee, followed by Jeffrey Plant. Adrian, you are unmuted. Thanks. This is uh, Adrian Hedden from the Carlsbad Current Argus and USA Today Network. Um, my uh, one question is, um, you know, as far as the hospitals, you know, you're talking about a high level of hospitalization uh, presently. Um, have you heard of or is there any sort of plan to, you know, try to go back to sort of limiting the amount of patients at the hospitals um, or, you know, elective procedures, things like that. Just just kind of wondering what you guys are hearing from the hospitals, if, if they're taking any action to address, you know, what could be coming a, a crowding issue um, due to this uptick from the Delta variants. Yeah, well, the hospitals have been filled since mid-August. And when we declared crisis standards of care, that was a pathway for hospitals to say, we're full, we can't take any more, we're gonna stop taking new patients, which right now is uh, not necessarily legal. And, and so those hospitals that are in crisis standards of care, and I'm not sure I could name them all off the top of my head, I know UNM and Sandoval Regional and Presbyterian and Albuquerque and Caseman Hospital in Albuquerque and Rust Hospital in Rio Rancho and San Juan Regional Medical Center and Gerald Champion and Alamogordo. I think I might have them all actually. Are have declared crisis standards of care, are not doing any elective procedures, et cetera. Uh, one of the uh, things we learned the first time through when we did close everything is, you know, an operating room nurse really can't just go up to the ICU and take over there. There's an overlap in skill set, but there's a huge gap as well. They're trained to take care of people who are under general anesthesia and run the operating room and make sure things are sterile, et cetera, et cetera. Very different situation. So we learned the first time through that these folks weren't transferable. Uh, second time through, I think in December, when we the first time we did crisis standards of care, uh, we did not unilaterally close down all elective procedures. And then, uh, so I think my our biggest crisis right now is ICU beds. And uh, <clears throat> about 90% of the state's ICU beds are in crisis standards of care hospitals where no elective procedures are being done. We don't like the term elective procedures also, and you, and I, I fell for it. Uh, we talk about medically necessary procedures or non-medically necessary procedures. And the governor is really firm about this. You know, she feels like we would have called uh, a woman who has an abnormal mammogram who needs a breast biopsy. We would have called that before the pandemic an elective procedure. But the fact is, if she has to wait for three months or six months, that's a serious risk to her health. And so uh, the governor and, and or even a colonoscopy for someone who has indications of internal bleeding we feel those are medically necessary procedures. And the definition of a medically necessary procedure currently in New Mexico under crisis standards of care is completely within the judgment of the treating provider. Department of Health has nothing to do with those decisions. So we feel like, number one, it's working the way it's working. Hospitals can voluntarily go in and out of this status. And we don't think that there's a potential for healthcare resources that can be transferred to ICUs, uh, which is our greatest area of need, were we to close things down. And the last time 
The first time we did this in March and April, the cost was in the neighborhood of $240 million of lost revenue to hospitals. And so we're trying to help them maintain their economy and put the decision-making into their own hands. Great, thank you. Um, just a quick note for our press corps. Um, if you've already asked a question, I'd request that you just put your hand down and we'll have a moment when we get through the first round of questions here where I'll ask you to, uh, well, I'll ask everybody to raise them again. So thanks so much for doing that, uh, both of you. Uh, next, we'll turn to Chris McKee, followed by Jeffrey Plant, followed by Kate Beery. Chris, you are unmuted. All right, thank you guys very much. Again, Chris McKee here from KRQE News 13. Hello, hello. Thank you, and uh, thank you to Secretary Holtram Lopez for that presentation on um, the aging population here today. Appreciate that. So, um, I wanted to follow up with a question about boosters because I kind of hear this sort of tale of uh, two different types of experiences people getting boosters, um, and, and they come from directly from some of my coworkers here. Um, on one side, I had a coworker who went and just literally called the CVS at Target uptown in Albuquerque and was able to basically say, hey, um, are you guys offering boosters? Sure, come on down, roll your sleeve up, got a booster shot. Then there's the other side of it here where I hear people trying to use the state portal and saying, there are no appointments in Albuquerque. Or for instance, I had a coworker who tried to schedule one and there was, she lives in Albuquerque, but yet, you know, the, the availability was Los Lunas, Corrales, and it was in days and weeks out. So I guess my question is, is maybe the best thing to do to be encouraging people to, to really just call their local pharmacy and try to do that kind of walk-in style? Because it seems like there is no issue of supply here, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but that people are still saying... I'm having trouble getting boosters if I use the state portal, but there, I guess there are other options out there from what I'm hearing from my coworkers. So should we be telling people to call in or just your local pharmacy and go and walk up, roll up your sleeve? Well, I think Chris, thanks for that question. And thanks for not having me summon another cabinet secretary to the next press conference. But uh, uh, I think it's a great question. And a bunch of people asked us beforehand. So once again, thanks to everybody who asked that question in advance. And I think on my slide I showed uh, statewide, uh, uh, I think I mentioned, uh, I think I'm almost to that slide. I'm, uh, here it is, that we have uh, over the next month about 109,000 booster appointments, but uh, uh, about 40% of them are open, 46,270. But your question is more specific. And of course, the open booster slots aren't available, you know, equally across the state. I mentioned earlier that we're having trouble securing venues to give max mass vaccine sorts of uh, uh, events. And so uh, that's an issue for us, particularly in Albuquerque, I will say. I'm looking right now where I can see the exact number of booster appointments available in Bernalillo County. Oh, wait, let me go to Bernalillo County. It switched on me. Uh, the exact number of booster appointments available in Bernalillo County, which is probably one of the most subscribed counties uh, for boosters. And it's 3,679 over the next week. 
And so we do need more mass vaccination sites. Somebody else, I think Gabriella Burkhart might've asked this, but right now we have uh, 66 mass vax lo uh, site uh, locations uh, in uh, our clinics scheduled, giving out an average of about 600 doses each for a total of 38,700 in the next month. We have uh, minivax sites with 100 to 249. That, that's about 54, sorry, 180 plus of those 28,000 vaccines. But I do agree with you. I think everybody needs a booster. And if it's easier for you or more convenient for you to go to a pharmacy or find a pharmacy that'll do it right away, that's great. My patients who are all over 75, they have to arrange transportation with their family. They want to make sure they're going to a place that's expected them, expecting them at a certain time. So we're open. I, and I think I think right now the dynamic you describe between the two is about 50-50. I have gotten calls from friends who uh, are telling me by or via text, hey, I'm in this line at this pharmacy. And it's like an hour and a half long. And uh, and I write back and say, this is just such great news. I'm really glad so many people are wanting to get boosters. So I think we're, I think if you can help us find some facilities or folks who can open up bigger places, we have both the vaccines and additional people to administer them. And uh, we're happy, <coughs> we are working right now to expand because actually, while it sounds like a lot of appointments, 3679, isn't really enough for Bernalillo County, even for the next week. Thanks very much. Uh, next, we'll turn to Jeffrey Plant, followed by Kate Beery, and then that'll round out uh, round one of questions. And at that point, I'll ask folks to raise their hands once again. So Jeffrey, you are unmuted. Hi, this is Jeff Plant from the Silver City Daily Press. I've uh, I've actually got a question related to uh, long-term care uh, services and aging. In 2019, uh, seniors aged AIDS, aged uh, 60 years and older accounted for about 17% of the state's population. And that same year, the governor uh, issued a proclamation predicting that by 2030, uh, the New Mexico population aged 60 years or older would account for more than 30% of the state's total population. And I'm wondering if you could you just talk a little bit about how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected the state's plans to address the senior age wave. Um, you know, I'm thinking about just the duration of the pandemic uh, and the impacts it's had on the healthcare system, you know, caregivers, even housing. Uh, I'd really be interested to hear a little bit about that. So I'm gonna start to give Katrina a chance to collect your thoughts. Uh, when I was at the university, my area specialty, if you will, was the demographics of aging in New Mexico. I have the data in my head for 65 and older. And Jeff, when, uh, Jeffrey, uh, when in the year 2000, New Mexico ranked 37th among the 50 states for people 65 and older with, uh, I think it was 14 point, no, 11.7%. And by 2030 for 65 and older, will be 26.4%, will rank number three in the country. And actually, when I left the university, we were starting a grand challenge at the university to deal with the demographics of aging. 
and Christine and I were on a call yesterday together. I would say that COVID has probably diverted attention away from this issue. And uh, not that seniors are getting less attention, because as you know, the pandemic has been particularly horrific with very, very high mortality rates in older people and in particularly the very old. So, um, but uh, there are a lot of efforts going on and I think Katrina can fill you in on what all is still being done. Thank you, David. And, and that's a great question. And I, I really appreciate it when, when folks, you know, uh, focus on the, the population, um, you know, or one of the populations that's been hit the hardest. Um, of course, it's been our seniors all around, not only in long-term care facilities, but um, around the state as a whole. And, um, you know, we have been working on what's going to be happening in the future and the future of aging with our populations and, and what our, our senior centers should, you know, evolve into. And that those, those future plans, even though we're still um, working on them, we are immediately working on how to stabilize um, a lot of our adult population, which now are suffering uh, from depression, isolation, um, and and some some mental health issues as well, just because of the pandemic and and because of the um, lack of socialization, um, we still do not have um, all of our long term care or senior centers open, um, which is a, where a lot of our seniors got socialization. But we do still provide meals, um, and we um, have over three hundred calls through our aging network um, a month or a week that, that happen um, um, to seniors checking in, make sure that they have what they need. Um, but we're looking at how to uh, improve the mental health, um, how to improve communication um, and living with COVID um, so that people can be active again. And in terms of um, our senior population, we have, um, you know, currently today, we've got one of the highest risks of um, uh, food insecurities. We've got um, a lot of our seniors um, who qualify for both Medicare and Medicaid, um, indicating that they hit the poverty line or below. And so we've been working on options such as, um, you know, how do we invest uh, in capital dollars into either supportive housing or senior housing um, so that our seniors are prepared and have options besides um, the long-term care avenue. Um, in terms of, of, of caregiving, that is across the nation a major problem. And it certainly is in long-term care facilities, as well as personal care options and people being able to stay in the community of their choice for longer. And so we are working with higher education. Um, we are working on innovative models such as the caregiver co-op and, you know, and utilizing sort of these incubator projects that we uh, will be funding out of the Kiki Saavedra Fund, which was passed a few years ago. And so we want options to where our caregivers actually can own their own business, bill Medicaid, um, be able to set their own hours. And, um, and then we're also looking at how we tap into some of those resources, such as um, the, um, the, the immigrants who are looking to be here legally and um, working with organizations who are trying to get them jobs. And how do we recruit um, caregivers out of that population as well? working with higher education on English as a second language as being an additional option to them. 
Um, I am happy to give you additional information on some of our strategies and plans for the future uh, because we presented that uh, at the Health and Human Services Committee and, um, you know, how we we really focus and are supporting our seniors. But it's really important that we focus on the boosters. We focus on their basic needs, which is housing, you know, food security, um, and, and so that we can really progress um, this next year into implementing um, a lot of our plans, um, you know, that we that we see for the aging population. Did that answer your question? That's great. Thanks. And I'll probably follow up with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, Matt, there question. is a question in the Q&A. I took care of one of them, but you want me to do that one next? We are actually about to call on Kate, so let's okay, let her perfect. ask it right out loud. Kate, you are unmuted. Please feel free to ask your question. Hi, thank you for having me. This is Kate with the ABC affiliate in Las Cruces, KVIA. Um, Walmart announced that it would proactively close a store here in West Las Cruces for deep cleaning. They did not state the nature of the outbreak in the store or if there was an outbreak in this specific store, but Walmart did proactively close this location on Valley Drive. My question for you is, can you speak to the spread of COVID-19 in southern New Mexico, especially when compared with a year ago? Have you ever heard of Walmart proactively closing a store in our state? Um, would the state consider closing any more stores? Thank you. Uh, I'll start. Christine probably has some comments, too, because I know in the Q&A section, you asked to comment in general about cases in the Las Cruces area. So Christine showed the map of the state with that the fact that the whole state, every county was red. But some counties, if you looked at that number column that was highlighted in the slide, are, are actually redder than others. And Doña Ana County has 92 cases uh, per 100,000, which is about eight times the threshold for high spread rate from the CDC. So Noniana has the fourth highest spread rate. We have had a fairly uh, established program for employers who have active cases in, uh, in their workplaces. And so this has been going on for years and the environment department, I believe has a lot of data on their website about this, but it's not unusual at all and this happens in state facilities as well, when we have a case in an office, we close the office, they come in and do a deep cleaning, uh, everyone gets tested, and we reopen the next day. Uh, we have had, that I know of, I'm sure there are more than one, but we have had uh, places, including a restaurant in Albuquerque, that we had to close through force, force of public health order or decisions of the public health department. But in general, uh, business owners in New Mexico are smart. They know that uh, they're willing to say, you know, I'm willing to give up 24 hours of customers to preserve my customer base for the next 24 years. So we've had an extremely high level of cooperation, very little need for fines, which can be up to $5,000. And uh, and uh, so, yes, I, I I can't speak very specifically to Walmart, but I think there's a high probability that other Walmarts have closed for that kind of cleaning in the past, either here in New Mexico 
or elsewhere. Christine might have a couple more details, but this is exactly the sort of thing you would be certain would happen in a county where there are 92 cases per 100,000 people uh, over a, a seven uh, over a seven day period. So uh, that's per day. Christine. I think you answered that very comprehensively. Okay. I don't think I have anything to add. Okay. Uh, so with that, folks, please feel free to raise your hands again if you'd like to ask a second question. And I'm seeing some already rising. So we'll begin with Julia Goldberg, followed by Chris McKee, followed by Cedar Atanasio. And I'm just going to pick them in the order I see them. Uh, so if you want to get in the line, please feel free. Uh, Julia, you are unmuted. Uh, thank you, Matt. And thanks again. I wanted to just clarify and make sure that I understood when Dr. Scrace, when in the coming few days, the state uh, recategorizes what it means to be fully vaccinated to include booster shots. Does that include a shift in how that data is reported? So, for example, if it happened today, would suddenly 23 percent of New Mexicans be fully vaccinated instead of 74 and a half? And I wondered as well, Dr. Ross, if that would then like if we anticipate that this is going to also be how they are nationally reported and it would feed into the CDC data in some way. Yes, unfortunately, yes, that's a great question, Julia. Unfortunately, thanks to Dr. Ross, we did not change the definition of fully vaccinated because it would do exactly what you said it would do. It would screw everything up. So the federal definition, the CDC definition of full vaccination is two doses of Pfizer or Moderna, or one dose of J&J. &J. So we are not changing that definition. We will be changing the requirements for healthcare workers, uh, schools, uh, and state employees to include uh, a requirement for a booster if one is due. And so we're, especially me, because I'm the one who screws it up the most, trying to be especially careful never to say that getting your primary series and a booster, if it's been more than six months or two months, represents full vaccination. Because we get that if we did that, all of a sudden, we'd be out of sync with the rest of the nation. So we won't do that. And it's a good point. Okay, thanks. I think I misunderstood. So I'm glad I asked. Thank you. I might have misspoken because I notorious for doing this. I'm having a really hard time never bringing up the, we actually, well, we, we've, we've had a long discussion over the past 24 hours about that and that, uh, but we're keeping the federal definition of full vaccination. That was uh, Dr. Ross's excellent. Uh, oh, it's so slow. Adrian, you might want to mute Adrian. Oh, sorry. I okay. thought you guys had muted me. My computer's being real slow. Okay, and uh, Rick Adrian, Ruggles. Believe me, you're not the very first person to forget to turn off mute. <laughs> and uh, uh, on this topic, uh, Rick Ruggles, if you're listening, um, you'd, you'd written and asked uh, for clarification on this. So I'll just send you a, essentially a transcription of what Dr. Scrace just said. Um, okay, moving on, we'll turn to Chris McKee followed by Cedar All right. Thanks again. Um, this was a question I sent in a little earlier, a statistical question 
I was asked here to see if there was an update on the number of people who maybe have been reinfected with COVID based on the sort of state's uh, parameters. I think it's that 90 day between when you test positive to second, maybe positive test, but um, feel free to clarify it for me. Not a doctor here. Thank you. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to start just by, because one of the things I love about Dr. Ross and her work with the Epi department is like, she, she already has put the answers to almost every person's questions online so the answer to your question about the number of cases uh, by uh, death counts rates, percentage of cases by vaccination status, uh, the breakthrough cases would be here. Those who are vaccinated, who've had another, who've had COVID. It's 30,513. Is that right, Christine? Specifically, though, I was I was wondering, I guess it's not necessarily a a breakthrough case because I'm not thinking about maybe vaccination in this sense, but uh, I don't know. I guess I'm confusing myself. Uh, just <laughs> if you've had a case twice, essentially, if you've been able, if you've oh. caught it once in January and then say August rolls around and you test again. Um, Got it. Yeah. So it's a yeah. second COVID case reinfection. So I am yeah. going to turn that over to Christine. I know Sorry. they have that somewhere, but I don't know where it is online. I was, I was going to jump in. Um, I, I think you got the surveillance definition correct, and um, but I, I'm afraid I didn't see your question ahead of time, so I don't have the most recent number at my fingertips. Um, uh, I, I, the last time I looked at that, I think it was in the, in the the, the 2,500 range, but I'm going to need to get that number for you. So how about I I can answer that? Um, Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. I remember, I think the last time I asked, the number was 2,225, and that was on September 9th. So yep. I was just curious okay. if there was an update. So thank okay. you. Well, I'm glad I remembered that uh, ballpark number correctly. But yeah, I can get you an sure. update. Thank you. Okay, next. Sorry, uh, I did misunderstand that question, Chris. That was me. No worries. All right. All right, next we'll turn to Cedar Atanasio, followed by Austin Fisher. Cedar, you are unmuted. Hello again. Um, Dr. Grace, you just gave a great overview of the, the vaccine mandates that the state has and the, a federal, limited federal employment vaccine mandate is going to go in, into effect on, on January 4th. So what's going to change in New Mexico? What are the industries or the communities that are going to have the biggest shift because of that federal mandate? Yeah, I, you know, we looked at this like the day Biden announced this. It was two or three months ago. And, I, and I'm just quoting a number from two or three months ago, so it probably won't be right. But we have in the neighborhood of 230,000 people in New Mexico who work at a place that employs 100 or more People And so uh, 30% of 230,000, or maybe it should be less by now. Let me, uh, let me, let me do that math really quickly. Uh, 230,000 people. And let's say now that 25% of them are unvaccinated. That's about 57,500 people that will need a vaccine. And I, Jim Kenny follows this really closely. 
I'm not 100% certain where the OSHA guidance has come out yet about how this will be administered, but we'll probably follow his lead and work with uh, Secretary Kenny to coordinate efforts to uh, ensure that we're doing our part uh, on the federal mandate. You know, on the healthcare workers, we announced that in mid-August, and then Biden announced mandatory vaccine for healthcare workers who received, who worked in places that got Medicare or Medicaid, which is virtually every healthcare hospital facility in the state. And so we had a little bit of a head start on that and have been doing that. But I think we want to, we don't want to veer away from the federal guidance and what they're doing. And so uh, I don't know, does anybody else have an update about what I, I, I knew a couple of weeks ago, the OSHA guidelines were about to be released, but I have not seen them myself. So I think we're going to follow. We want to see the details from the feds, work with the environment department, and then come up with a plan to determine whether the public, a public health order, or there's even a role for the Department of Health. And in other things like nursing homes, uh, the feds have set up their own reporting system and the data uh, Katrina showed you is actually data that our nursing home sent to CMS and that we got back from CMS to present to you. So it, I imagine it'll be similar to that when we have the details. Thanks so much. Uh, next we'll turn to Austin Fisher. Austin, uh, yeah. I actually had a uh, had a related question, coincidentally. So um, yesterday, actually, a federal judge in Louisiana issued a ruling blocking that nationwide mandate. Um, and I wanted to ask uh, if that would have any effect on the, the August 17th order uh, requiring all workers in New Mexico hospitals and congregate care facilities to be fully vaccinated. Um, so I don't know, I would, you know, I would, we would have Billy Jimenez, our award-winning attorney and general counsel, read that finding from the federal court. I'd probably ask him, of course, we can't unvaccinate people, right? So, uh, I think that, uh, as far as we know, uh, you know, we did the right thing. Most people I know want to get their healthcare from a vaccinated healthcare worker, which is now, you know, more than a 90% probability in New Mexico. And before um, the public health order was about a 76% probability. So uh, I, it's a good question. And the answer is, I don't know, but uh, we'll ask Billy to take a look at that. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. So that was uh, the last hand for round two. Would any uh, members of the press corps like to ask a, a third question? Okay, seeing a couple more hands go up. Cedar, I saw you first. Feel free to speak. Um, so the, the governor's acknowledged that she needs the legislature to allocate pandemic federal aid. Um, and I'm just wondering, uh, Dr. Scrace, what's your understanding of health department spending that might be at risk or on the line or or um, could could cause you problems if the, if the legislature doesn't sort of quickly approve the spending decisions that have already been made. 
Uh, great question. If you want to tune in to our legislative finance presentation Friday at three, you'll hear a lot more detail then. And if you have the time and interest in hearing our LFC presentation, then my condolences. But we'll be talking about that more. I Let me back up to a much higher level and, and first say that there are many, many streams of federal funding that DOH is getting and HSD for that matter as well during this pandemic. The recent Supreme Court ruling in the state applies to ARPA funding. And in my conversations with key legislators, and so I can't speak, what they're saying is that this only applies to like lump sum, sum funding. So for example, in, uh, you know, HSD gets, will be getting a substantial amount of federal funding for home-based community services that is earmarked for home-based community services under ARPA. And my understanding uh, from talking to lit, um, leaders of the legislature, it's really only non-earmarked funds that count. As far as ARPA and DOH goes, and uh, Rihanna, I'm scrambling to find our budget presentation slide, but I think I, I can bring it up. I know that we had about $6 million in vaccine incentives that we used ARPA funding for. So those have been spent and, and uh, you know, you know, already paid out. Uh, and then we did uh, have about 11 million in personnel costs uh, to actually backfill some areas that we uh, needed to shore up as a result of moving everybody off of what they were doing and over uh, to COVID. And so uh, that also uh, has been uh, uh, part of the money. And then there was a another million seven. And unfortunately, I don't know why, but I'm not seeing this budget uh, presentation slides here. I think, I, I, and so uh, I don't know if anybody else uh, wants to jump in, Christine, or uh, I think I think I'm getting a text. There was 1.1 million for disease prevention efforts as well. So I think that just about covers it. Uh, you know, we have a great relationship with the uh, legislature. I like to say both at HST and DOH. There really isn't anything we can do to, uh, that will benefit the people of New Mexico that doesn't happen through a partnership between the exec executive branch and the legislative branch because they do fund us. I think we have a long history of showing how many how many New Mexicans will benefit from investments. And I am not particularly fearful that important programs that we currently have up and running are gonna be dismantled as a result of the ruling. But I would also say, same time that it's still on us to show the benefit to the New Mexico taxpayer for every general fund dollar we spend. And so we're not backing off on that at all. But kind of in final answer to your question, the day of the ruling, I asked folks at HSD and DOH to prepare a schedule of all the ARPA funding for exactly the purpose I think uh, that's behind your question. Well, and if I could just follow up and we'll we'll see you Friday. Um, <laughs> but you gave, you gave some examples of, of what didn't fall into it. I just wanna clarify that the, the, the 6 million in vaccine incentives would be an example of ARPA funds that your understanding is it would fall under that ruling. Yeah, so for example, in the future, 
if we wanted to do another vaccine incentive, and apparently like living 14 years longer, I'm hoping that will be the new vaccine incentive, but uh, you know, we would probably uh, meet with legislative, you know, if it was right like it is now, right before the session, or if it, actually if it was last summer, we put it in our budget. If it was right before the session, like we are now, we would put in our presentation, say we'll be asking for this uh, during the session. But I am certain that the legislature will figure out a way to set up a responsive way of dealing with pandemic emergencies that wouldn't require us to, let's just say we were gonna get funding for uh, a significant state testing effort. I'm sure the legislature will figure out a way to appropriate those funds outside of the legislative, uh, normal legislative cycle. And I'm not, but I have no idea how they're gonna do it. And I, you know, I, it sounded like I was speaking for the legislature and I absolutely am not. I, I am not speaking for them, but I know the people, I know the folks on all the finance on both finance committees and then, and none of them think that we could manage a pandemic by allocating funds once a year. Thank you. Next, uh, and perhaps finally, uh, we'll see. We'll, uh, turn to Austin Fisher. Austin, please feel, feel free to ask your question. Uh, yeah. So my question is for Dr. Scrace again. As of the end of October, uh, we had previously reported that firefighters, emergency medical technicians, and paramedics. Uh, were not included in the state's vaccine mandate. I wanted to ask if that's still the case. And also the second part of my question would be, do you, does the state know the rate of vaccination among those first responders? Um, great question. Appreciate you not letting go of this one. Not something you'll be hearing about in the next couple of days. Uh, still under discussion. In some areas, we know everything. Let's just take EMTs and, and other and fire, firefighters. So, uh, for example, Presbyterian in Albuquerque owns uh, Albuquerque Ambulance Company. And we do know that they've vaccinated or uh, otherwise employees have exemptions for 100% of their employees. Uh, other larger EMT operations have place vaccine requirements in place. Part of the problem is that many small rural communities rely on volunteers for their EMS. And hard as it would be for us if we live in Albuquerque or Santa Fe or in between to imagine, you know, you dialing 911 and someone getting, you know, being woken up out of bed to go to the fire station or whatever, or, uh, you know, we do have a lot of volunteer emergency medical technicians in the state. Transportation is a critical resource right now. And so that whole idea of extending uh, vaccination requirements to all healthcare workers, and there's lots of other groups as well, is still on the table and still has not been decided. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, I'm not seeing any more hands up, but I'll just put out the uh, invitation one last time. Anyone like to ask a final question today? And once, okay, uh, well, with that, then let's, uh, 
offer a chance for our panelists uh, to provide any final remarks they might like to provide. Uh, we'll go in the order of uh, Secretary Hotram Lopez, Dr. Ross, and Dr. Scase. Secretary Hotram Lopez. Um, thank you, Matt. Uh, I just want to thank everyone uh, for, for taking the time today and uh, listening to uh, what's happening in long-term care facilities. And, and again, um, you know, this seems to be at the forefront of what's happening with aging, but we still are um, doing a lot of aging activities, um, including feeding and uh, making sure that people's, uh, you know, basic levels of needs are met. Um, I just want to thank the staff in long-term care facilities um, for getting vaccinated and those residents because it's making a difference in the lower death count. And I'm really proud to say that this is one of our accomplishments and we're continuing to roll out those boosters as quickly as we can so that residents have not only a voice, but, um, you know, can, can, can actively uh, live with COVID and, and not fear uh, death. So thank you so much. And uh, I'll pass it along to Christine. Okay, thank you. So I just want to summarize by saying, you know, we don't have enough information yet on Omicron uh, to declare a new phase in the pandemic or a, a change in strategy. Um, scientists uh, and, and various experts all in agreement that we really need to focus on the tried and true. In other words, the same prevention uh, recommendations hold uh, hold true right now. And vaccination remains our best tool uh, uh, to protect uh, an individual, to protect a community, to protect New Mexico. So please, if you're unvaccinated, please, uh, I would say that, that um, uh, this is certainly the time. Please seek out um, a vaccination. If you're eligible for a booster, it's really important uh, to seek out that booster. And that's anybody 18 and over, um, I believe, is the current recommendation. And I would say, let think about... Um, um, let's use all the tools we have, all the prevention tools we have, which include wearing a mask over your nose and your mouth, uh, especially in areas of high or substantial community transmission, which happens to be all of New Mexico right now. So please wear your mask uh, in public, indoors. Um, as always, physical distancing, hand hygiene. These are these things are really, really important at, at mitigating onward uh, spread. So thank you. And and I'm just going to close with a couple of things. First up, uh, uh, Cedar Adesanya, um, while you're marking your calendar for the DOH hearing on Friday at three, I'm sure you'll want to take time out of your busy weekend to tune into the Human Services Department hearing Saturday at, from noon to 1.30. So I just wanted to get that on your calendar. I want to say that uh, we know that we're tight on booster capacity in Albuquerque, uh, get the booster, however, wherever you can. Most, uh, not all, but most physicians now are offering booster vaccines. If you're having a regular appointment to get your, you know, your high blood pressure checkup or diabetes or whatever, uh, an increasing number of physicians every week are offering them in their offices. And we need your help on the boosters if you know, or you own, or have access to a very large site that we could do more vast mass vaccine events, particularly in Las Cruces, Albuquerque, and uh, Santa Fe and Española, uh, let us know, contact us. 
I think uh, my final uh, my final uh, comment really is that people, unvaccinated people who die of COVID at the median or very close to the average are 14 years younger than vaccinated people who die of COVID. And, uh, you know, that is, you know, striking to me, roughly 56 to, to 70. And so I would also speak to those of you who've got someone in their 50s uh, who you live with or a parent or a brother or sister or a child for that matter. Um, and you would like them to be around for another 14 years. I really encourage you to reach out and, and give them this latest data on the life-saving benefits of uh, a, a complete series, a, a primary series of uh, coronavirus vaccines and then that booster um, let everybody in your family know about that as well. And with that, we thank you. Thanks for the week off uh, for Thanksgiving. Uh, uh, we believe that things may be getting better, but I'm pretty sure we'll be back next week. And uh, Christine and uh, with the Omicron show to let everybody know uh, what the latest is that we're, we're learning about that and with more progress on vaccines. So thank you all. Be safe. You know how to take care of yourself. You know how to be safe. Be safe. Take care. Thanks, all. Have a great afternoon.